There was a young boy that was praying to Jesus. He said, I've been a good boy this year, and I pray Santa will bring me all the toys on my list, Jesus. He got thinking about it a little later and said, well, I haven't been good all year. I've gotten trouble in school, but Jesus, I'll be good this last few weeks before Christmas. And then he got thinking about it even further. And he says, Jesus, I just wanted to let you know that I went up to the manger scene. I picked up Mary, your mother, and if Santa doesn't grant my list, you won't see your mother again. <laughs> oh, wiped out, wiped out the shepherd. What else can I do here? So, Christmas is a time for human nature to get exposed. I showed a video a few weeks back about the fighting on Black Friday over sale items. I've heard people losing it in traffic jams at the mall where they get tied up and they get uh, out of their minds. Uh, also, we know that, that family Christmases have a way of being strange. I know that in my family, we would have Christmas and my dad's dad died when he was very young, so he really never had a Christmas. He was the ultimate Grinch. He tolerated it because of my mother. My mother was a, a type of woman that she wanted Christmas with fine china, the perfect meal, but since her cooking skills were limited, the turkey and the fixings came from Kroger's, and he, she usually had my wife, who is a good cook, make the pies and the desserts. And then my mother's rich sister would come to the Christmas and bring all kinds of great gifts that my parents couldn't afford because they were school teachers. And then she brought her husband, who was usually drinking or drunk, who couldn't keep his hands off the young ladies. And then my grandmother would show up, a good old southern lady with no filter on her mouth, usually making inappropriate comments. And then my sister would come, and it was multiple choice, which of her five husbands would come, uh, and which kids would come, and she'd be telling us about the drama in her life. And then there was Cousin Ted, who was gay, and the subject was avoided. And then we'd have my dad's deceased, uh, my dad's deceased brother's wife, and my dad was in his 80s then, who would come, and she was young and beautiful, 25 years younger than my dad's brother. Uh, she graduated two years uh, ahead of me in high school, and we, that'd be interesting too. And that was just part of my family. I didn't even get into Karen's family, <laughs> where somebody always left mad. Face it, when we look at our families, our families are not precious moment families. We're beautiful families, but we're broken. And family Christmases can be messy. And the first Christmas was no different. If you look at that first Christmas, we see that, that it was a Christmas that is really one that, that was not perfect or hallmark. Yes, the manger scene looks good. The manger scene reminds us of a true biblical message of Christmas. Yes, we love to have Christmas trees. Uh, we love to have lights on the house. Some of us have enough up to make the Griswolds jealous. Uh, some of us like live trees. Some of us like uh, dead trees so they don't have to clean up the mess. 
So there's all kinds of, of reminders and symbols of Christmas, but the manger is the one that is the best. But it does remind us of how messy Christmas is. See, you see all different kinds of reaction to Christmas when you see the manger. Now, last week you heard about Herod and how Herod was wanting to have all the babies killed because he was, uh, he was afraid this new king was going to take his job. And Nick told us about how he was a psychopath. And because Herod had, uh, had gone crazy, then God had to pick a hero to save the baby Jesus. Now, we look in the Bible, and if you ask the question, does God ever choose ordinary people when he wants to raise a hero? And I believe God looked down from heaven and says, who can I use whose heart is receptive? And when you look at the manger and the display that you see down there, we would probably pick the angel, thinking I'd like to have the angel save the day. They're powerful. They're called in all the time. But what we see happening is, is God chose Joseph, the dad, to save the day, to save Christmas. And this is great, because when you think about Joseph, if you see him, he's nearly always in the background. He's usually behind Mary. He's usually behind the manger. And Joseph isn't the flashy dude in the Christmas story. In the nativity scene, he's usually behind the shepherds and the wise men in Mary's shadow. If you look at the story, he never has a line. In fact, you don't read a single word about Joseph that he spoke during Christmas. He doesn't have any dialogue, yet Joseph saves the day saves Christmas. And that first Christmas was messed up. Again, like we said, Herod tries to kill Jesus. Then you have Caesar Augusta give a decree that there should be a census of the entire empire where everybody has to go back to the town they were born. I mean, how many of you were born in major hospital? Hmm, not just some of you. Just think about back before cars, buses, trains, and airplanes having to go back to where you were born and to be able to be counted. Boy, that was messy, that decree. And Christmas got a lot messier when we look at the Scripture today. Because basically it says in Matthew 1.18 that his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Boy, that's pretty significant. That's messy. The pledge or betrothal or engagement before they came together. In other words, before they were able to get married, there was to be no sex before the marriage. Yet she's found to be pregnant. And let's stop right there. If you're Joseph, that's messed up. And let's get some historical context. When the Bible uses the word betrothed, it's much more than an engagement. I remember, I imagine there's several of you that have been engaged two or three times before you married the woman you love. And betrothal at that time was actually more close to a marriage. 
So evidently, Mary and Joseph had known each other for a while, and they were both from this small town of, of Nazareth. And let's assume they met at the synagogue, because the synagogue would have been the spiritual and social center of the community. And just uh, for you little young people, that's kind of a sidebar. If you want to find God's person for you, you don't want to go through the wanted ads. You don't want to go through the local bar, the club. Your best shot at finding God's person is when you immerse yourself in God's house and in God's work. I have a beautiful wife. That'll be a good point. We met at Bible study at the Methodist and Baptist Center and all those activities that those Baptist and Methodist organizations sponsored. Now, what I want to say is, now don't just go to church to find someone. You go to church for God. You get involved and you serve God's purpose. But I think you'll find that person there. I think Mary and Joseph met at the local synagogue. And the way dating worked in that culture that Joseph would have to go talk to Mary's parents. Mary's parents would go talk to Joseph's parents and they would supervise the courtship and the dating. And if they decided, Joseph and Mary, they wanted to pursue marriage, then the two families would solidify a marital contract, go to the city gate before the city fathers and strike a deal. And they would be betrothed, engaged, pledged, which was as bonding as a marriage. But the, what happened is, for the next year, the two kids went back to live with their parents, and they had no sexual relations. And after a year, they came back, and there was a marriage ceremony, and then it was consummated. And if you don't know what consummated means, talk to your parents. And now you have the context of Mary and Joseph in in this Matthew 1.18. And here's Joseph had had a supervised relationship of dating with no sexual relation for the entire betrothal period. And now Mary shows up pregnant. And she shows up with a crazy story. The Holy Spirit did it. All Joseph knows is he ain't the daddy. It ain't his baby. For Joseph, he could have had Mary killed, executed, they took sin a lot more seriously back then than we do now. Adultery now and things like that. Eh, who cares? Joseph could have had her killed. And Joseph knew he wasn't the father. Someone had to be. And you guys, think about it. You men. He had to feel rejected, betrayed, confused. His plans had just been blown up. He's a real guy. Heartbroke, humiliated, shame. He loves Mary, yet she cheated on him. And then God comes to him in a dream. Here is Joseph of no wealth, no influence, not a great education. Joseph was just an average Joe. Isn't it wonderful that God has a habit of visiting ordinary people with extraordinary dreams for their life just like God made you God loves you and God has a dream for your life and God's dream for your life and my life is always God-sized God's dream for your life is always big with a God scope and a God scale 
So God comes to Joseph with a dream, and he says, basically, Mary hasn't cheated on you. Mary hasn't lied. This thing is happening because of God. And she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Joseph, you're going to be the earthly father of the promised one. That was cool. But that was messy. Joseph had his own plans for his life, just like we all have our own plans. Little plans for our life. Plans that we have scripted out because we know where we want to go. But because we're Christians, we invite God to join us in our plans. But what we usually want God to do is just to look at our plans and initial them and say, that's go, good, go forward, I'll sign off. But God almost never signs off on our plans. Joseph had a plan, quiet life, avoid the Romans, meet a nice girl, get married, have some kids, be a carpenter like his dad. And God blows this up and says, you're going to be the father of the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? And not only did it stop there with Joseph, but Joseph saves the day again. Because God comes to Joseph in a dream and says, don't go back to Nazareth, go to Egypt. That that crazy Herod is coming after your child. And that was a big move for Joseph because if you remember from the Exodus and Moses, Egypt wasn't the most hospitable place for Jews. But do you know what Joseph's greatest attribute was? Obedience. Obedience. Joseph obeys God quickly, radically, without excuse, without an explanation. The Bible says that very night, Joseph took his wife and his baby and moved everything to a foreign country, Egypt. Joseph saves the day again, but that was messy. I'm sure they'd rather gone back to a house in in Nazareth and settle down. Now, when we talk about Christmas and the Christmas mess, there's some more things that you see when you look at the nativity scene, and Nick touched on them last week, and that's the, the wise men, the magi. They remind us that some people are, are, are looking for Christmas. Here are the Magi who aren't Christian, who aren't Jew, who come from the East, who travel 900 miles. They don't know anything about the Bible. They're probably hoofing it to come see him, showing us that people go looking for God. And in today's world, there are a lot of people that try to explain away God. There's a lot of people that try to deny the existence of Jesus Christ. Calling us who believe in Jesus superstitious and needy. But the Magi show us that even brilliant people are looking for God. People who may have tried everything else in the world and still find no meaning or purpose, they know something is missing in their lives because they don't have God. And I believe that even smart people reach a point they know what they have pursued in the world isn't fulfilling them. So they may come to church. They may 
come to you as a Christian at work trying to find out the answer. Is God real? Did, did God really make me? Does God have a plan for my life? Do you know that people are more receptive to come to church during Christmas than any other time of year? And that's an invitation for you to invite people to come to Sunday before Christmas or the Christmas Eve services we're having at 7.30 and 9 o'clock to just come hear about the message of Jesus Christ. But another thing about these wise men, even though they weren't worshipers of God yet, what we see is they come bringing gifts. I think they knew that part of worship is generosity. They didn't exactly know who God is, but they recognized that the right response to God is not just worship and praise, but generosity. Which is amazing because we all recognize that generosity kind of flows at Christmas. I believe during the Christmas season, almost everyone is generous. Even people who aren't naturally generous. And you will find even cheap people being generous during the Christmas holidays. And we Christians know that Jesus is the reason for the season, that Christmas is his birthday, and the right response of a Christian is to be generous because of what Jesus did for us. Especially in a culture where they don't want to hear Merry Christmas. They want to hear Happy Holidays. They don't want Christmas carols to be sung. See, the world will take a day off for Jesus' birthday, but they refuse to recognize him. But what we know is Jesus shouldn't be an afterthought on the occasion of his birthday. Jesus ought to be our first thought. And generous is a responsible theological response to Christ on the occasion of his birthday. And I challenge you to be generous. Maybe go out and tip a waitress. I know this last Friday morning at our Bible study at Denny's that we andied up to leave a tip for our sweet waitress who's a mom that struggles and, and we left over $200 in cash for her out of six or seven people. I challenge you to have that kind of generosity during Christmas. See, there is, there is a need for us to reflect Jesus. Now, there was a last response when we talk about a messy Christmas. Some people have no room for Christmas. And this character represents that. I had to drag him out. He's the guy here in the white, white gown and robe there. He lived in Bethlehem, right on the block, but he missed out on the greatest miracle of his generation. And that person is the innkeeper. You see him in Luke 2, 7. What did he say? No vacancies. But you can stay with the animals in the back. That innkeeper was so close, but he missed it. He could have been right there with that Savior born in his inn. How many people today miss Christmas for the same reason? They aren't people that are anti-Jesus. They don't hate Christmas, but they miss out on the Christmas miracle. They're close, but they're distracted. They have other priorities, so they miss it. So 
What does God want from you this Christmas? I think God wants space in your busy life. I think He wants room. And not just during the Christmas time of year, and not just a slice on Sunday morning. He wants you. He wants all of you. The good, the talent, the potential, the, the passions. He wants even the bad, the brokenness, the pain, the mistakes, the shame. God wants you to present all of this to him. The good, the bad, as a gift to him. See, this little baby grew into a Messiah who died on a cross and was raised from the dead to give you the greatest gift of all, salvation. He wants you, even with the good and the bad, He wants everyone to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. He wants you to invite that neighbor to come to church for that Christmas Eve service because there's room for everyone if they will accept Him. Don't tell Him no vacancies. Jesus wants you. God wants to intersect with people. God creates those divine moments, but we need to make space for Him this Christmas.